Well, good evening. My name is John Trapp, um, and welcome to RUF. We're really glad to have you all here. Um, RUF is it's a place where we come and we ask honest questions about Scripture, and it's a place where also I hope that you can feel like you can be honest uh, with yourself. Because one of the things that Scripture tells us is from Romans three ten through 11, it says that no one is righteous, no, not one. That no one even seeks after God. That all of us are, uh, are sinners and unrighteous. And so what that means is maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you're just kind of checking out what does the Bible say. I, I, I hope you know this is a safe place to be in the sense that this is not a place of, of judgment. Because a Christian, what we think the Bible says, in Rome, like in Romans 3 and lots of other places, a Christian is somebody who, who isn't great in and of themselves. They don't, they're not a Christian because they're some awesome moral person. They're the reason that grace is amazing is because God comes and he chases after sinners. He chases after people who don't deserve it. And so I hope that tonight um, you can ask honest questions of Scripture, but also that you can be honest with yourself. Um, and, and also, does, is the picture that we're going to read in Revelation 13 about what the world is really like, does this jive with your experience? Does this seem like an honest portrayal? And if it does... Can you be honest with yourself about what you really need and, and where there's hope to be found in this world? Because we do live in a world that's really broken. And I, I, you've probably been reminded of that this week. I know I have. That this world is not the way it should be. That there are tragedies that happen every day. And the Bible doesn't back down from that reality. But it's honest about it. And I think it's particularly um, refreshing to see the honesty of it in the book of Revelation. Now, when I, um, when I told people that I was going to preach through the Revelation with you guys, uh, sometimes I would get the reaction. A common reaction was like, whoa, really? And I think the, the, the whoa really response is maybe because of passages like the one we're going to read tonight. Because there's just so much going on. And it can feel like Revelation is, and, there, and it is confusing. There's, there's parts of it that's, that's confusing and hard to understand. But the book is not written to confuse you or to even make you afraid about not being able to figure out every little detail. The very first words of the book of Revelation, John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when he writes those words, he's not just announcing the title of the book. He's announcing the topic of the book. That this book is all about Jesus, and the point of it is to reveal who he really is and who our, what our world is really like. And so it's, in a sense, peeling back the curtain of reality to show this is how things really are, and it's going to use these images, many of which are rooted in the Old Testament. We've, we've, I feel like I say this every week, but many of these images, and you'll see it again today, are rooted in the Old Testament. And he's using these images to show this is what the world is like. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. He's, he's kind of um, someone who, whose thoughts really influenced C.S. Lewis. Uh, Lewis was kind of, uh, Chesterton was one of Lewis's heroes. Listen to what Chesterton says about fairy tales. He says, fairy tales are more than true. Not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. That's what makes fairy tales true. And Revelation is going to use these images, and these images 
they're not necessarily literally occurring. Like we read about locusts, that this image of locusts a couple of weeks ago. That doesn't mean like we need to be waiting for a day when like locusts are going to descend upon the earth and like that's going to be crazy. But it also the fact that it's not literally um, happening doesn't make it untrue. I think it makes it, as Chesterton says, more than true because we're getting to see how things really are. So tonight, the images, the images may sound crazy and bizarre, but I think that they actually apply to our life today. So let's look at this passage in Revelation 13 together. John writes this, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us these words, that they have been preserved, and that we can now open them so many years later, and that they are still so applicable to the world that we live in now. And I pray that you would help us to see that, and I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word now and it's in jesus name we pray amen so y'all know i'm from a small town in alabama and uh, called tuscumbia 
And Tuscumbia is in the northwest corner of Alabama. It's about 30 minutes from Tennessee and about 20 minutes from Mississippi. And there's this famous old road called the Natchez Trace. It was formerly uh, a road that the Native Americans used um, before it was paved. And so it kind of winds through the state of Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee. And it's really beautiful. It's part of like a um, series of parks. And you can only go like 35 miles an hour. It's like a famous speed trap. And there's no street lights on the Natchez Trace. And it's just this two-lane road that kind of like rambles through these uh, kind of backwood parts of the country. Well, I had uh, one of my friends, this guy named Bo, and Bo t- tells a story, and it, this is super creepy, so saddle up. But Bo was um, with his friend, and they were riding on the Natchez Trace at about 1 o'clock in the morning. And you have to understand, at 1 o'clock in the morning, on the, I mean, you've r- driven on, like, back Texas roads like this before, too, but, like, there is, the only lights are your car lights, right? And you're just driving through this tunnel of blackness. And you're being careful because there's deer that pop out and everything. They're driving on the Natchez Trace, and they turn, and they see their headlights hit this human figure that is cloaked and hunched over like this and is pushing a baby stroller at one in the morning on the side of the road <laughs> in Backwoods, Alabama. And they're, pu- it's, they're pushing this baby stroller, and they're hunched over, and they've got this shawl around them, and... Bo's like, what do we do? And his friend's like, I guess we should stop and help. Like, they're pushing the stroller. So they pull up next to this person. And as they pull up, the figure begins to grow taller and taller. And the shawl reveals this large bearded man. And he's pushing an empty baby stroller. And then he jumps out and gets, no, I'm just kidding. He didn't do that. But, sorry. Sorry, the, I'm, I'm sure the person listening to the podcast of this just, like, wet themselves. Just, my mom wasn't. Sorry, Mom. But <laughs> Bo sees this man, and he's smiling at them, and he's moving towards the doorknob of their car. And Bo just says, go, 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 go. And he drew, the, the driver just jets forward, and they called the police. And they said, there's someone who's, like, masquerading as a woman who's in distress, and he's on the side of the road of the National Trace at 1 in the morning. And the police are like, we know. We've gotten calls from him. We think we know who it is. He's dangerous. Do not mess with him. Right? <laughs> yeah. Scary. Here's why I tell you that story. There is something especially dangerous about evil when it is cloaked. When it is, when it is masquerading as something else. And I'll be upfront. Most of my understanding of this passage in Revelation 13, this is not my original understanding. I'm, I am really standing on the shoulders of two pastors, Brian Habig and um, Brian Sorgan Fry, um, and also a New Testament scholar named uh, Vern Poitras. And Dr. Poitras, he's a smart dude. He's got his PhD in math from Harvard. He's got his master's in literature from Cambridge. Um, he's a lecturer in philosophy and New Testament theology. And one of the things um, Dr. Porthrus says in his book is that Revelation 13 is all about the counterfeit things in the world and the true things in this world. And, in, uh, and, and this, is, this is how we see evil works in the world, is that it cloaks itself as good, but it's counterfeit. So two things I want to look at tonight. One, counterfeit gods 
and two, the real thing, okay? So counterfeit gods and the real thing. So first off, counterfeit gods. So Revelation 13, and the chapter before we looked at last week, uh, introduces this dragon. Um, Revelation 12 and 13 introduces this dragon, this first beast that comes from the sea, and a second beast that comes from the land. And what a lot of theologians understand this to be is this is really a counterfeit version of the Trinity. This is an evil version of the Trinity that's counterfeiting Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but now instead you've got dragon, sea beast, land beast. And let's look, so we're going to look at the sea beast and the land beast, because that's really what these two chapters are about. So first off, look at the sea beast, and there's so many things that the sea beast is counterfeiting about the way Jesus is also described in other parts of the book of Revelation. So if you looked at Revelation 19, the way that Jesus is described in Revelation 19 is that he's wearing many crowns and that he's got names written on his body that only he knows the name of. And not only that, but he's also depicted in Revelation 5 as a lamb who is slain, who is seated on the throne. And so look, you, you see this, these, these parts of that description of Jesus counterfeited here in the first section of Revelation 13, that this beast comes out of the sea, that it's got all of these crowns on it, that it's got blasphemous names written all over it, and that it has this mortal wound that's been healed, that is, that's counterfeiting Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus was mortally wounded and rose from the dead. And so this is a counterfeit image of Christ, but it's also supposed to kind of freak you out and be beastly and show this is, what, this is what evil really looks like, is it's cloaked to look like something good, but it's not. It's evil. And what is its goal? We get an idea of its goal, again, from the Old Testament imagery that's used here. It's the goal of this beast of the sea is, is conquest to rule the world. And did you see the descriptions that are used, that it, it looks like a leopard? Um, it's got feet like a bear. Its mouth is like a lion. Now, the people who this is written to, they're mostly Jews who've converted to Christianity, so they know their Old Testament. And in Daniel 7, you have these, these four beasts. And the first three of them, the first three beasts are a leopard, a bear and a lion, the exact same ones here. And then the fourth one is this kind of mysterious ten-horned beast. And now here you've got another beast, and it's got ten horns, and it's got all these other pieces of these different uh, beasts from D Daniel chapter 7. And, but now it's a combined version of all of those. And the way that Daniel 7 is understood really broadly by most people who read it is that this is a depiction, a prophecy about all of these foreign nations that were going to um, conquer and oppress the Jewish people in Daniel 7. Okay? And so, John is borrowing from all of this imagery, this image that he has seen, is borrowing from these governments that oppress God's people. Except this one is like a combination of them all, and it's even more hideous and powerful. And I think, I think that the Christians living in this day could relate to that image. Because remember their context. They're living in a world in Rome. Where they're living in a world that is oppressed 
and completely led by Rome. And they're getting squashed by Rome. They're being persecuted by Rome. Christians, I, I mean, I could go on and on about the ways that Christians were persecuted in the first and second century. One example, Nero was famous for taking Christians and driving them, running them through with a lance. And while they were still alive, he would set them up in his gardens and light them on fire so that he could have light for his evening parties that he would throw in the garden. Burning Christians. That was these people's reality. And so when John depicts there is a, a, a worldwide system that is going to oppress you and conquer you, they would be like, yeah, we feel that. But the question, too, is, is this like something that just happened in the past? Is this something that's going to one day happen? Should we be like looking out for like, what's the next beast that's going to come out of the sea? Like, is that, should we be freaked out about that? I, I think that we get a clue from that on when this is going to happen based on the amount of days that this happens. Look at, um, look at verse 5 that the beast is given this mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And 42 months pops up all throughout the book of Revelation. You may have caught it last week when we were looking at Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, um, the woman flees into the wilderness. The woman who we said represents the church, she flees into the wilderness where God takes care of her in the wilderness, and there she's nursed for 1,260 days. Anyone want to take a guess of what 1,260 days divided by 30 is? It's 42 months. It's 42. And in Revelation 11, 2 and 3, the holy city of God is trampled for 42 months. So you've got these 42 months kind of popping up all throughout. And from, from the commentaries that I've read, the best way we can understand w- w- what is the image that he's getting from 42 months, it's this. If you read in Numbers chapter 33, so the book of Numbers, it, it documents kind of um, Old Testament Israel's history and especially what their life was like when they were in the wilderness, in exile. And in chapter 33, it lays out, these are the different places that we wandered to while we were in the wilderness. And there's 42 places. There's 42 total places that they wandered, that they stopped at, different stages of their wandering. You can look at, look at it in number 33. It's pretty interesting. So this is, the, this is the image that John is using here, that John is seeing, is, hey, remember when we were waiting to go into the promised land? We had... We had escaped from the slavery of Egypt, but we were still waiting to go into the promised land where everything would be good and right. That's what it's like now. Because Jesus had, you have escaped the slavery of sin, just like the Israelites escaped the the slavery of, of Egypt. You've escaped the slavery of sin, but you're still waiting to go into the promised land. And, I, and so life as a Christian, it's why Peter says, like, I'm an alien in this place. This is not my home. This is like living in exile. And, the, and so when, like, I think that that answers when does this happen. It's happening now. We're living in it. We're living in this story of exile and living under 
in a world where the beast of the land reigns. I'm sorry, the the beast of the sea reigns. Um, It's why you see this in verse 7, that the beast is allowed to conquer not just just non-believers, but also saints. That the saints of God are also under his rule and under his oppression. And this is a depiction of life now. And it's why these people call out, who can fight against this beast? And here's what I want you to think about. If this beast really is a counterfeit god, the question is, is the, the same question could be, who can fight against these counterfeit gods in our lives? Because the American experience is not one where we are being oppressed overtly for our religion, at least not in the same way that they were in Rome. But that may happen one day. And there are some ways in in which it does happen. And that happens to some of you in the classroom. But aside from that, there are ways in which there are counterfeit gods set before you every day. And when I say counterfeit gods, what what I'm really getting at is things that you would look to and, and think that's the thing that's where my hope is. That's the thing that's going to save me. That, remember, this is a false savior that's presenting itself here in Revelation 13. And we do the same thing. We put our trust in false idols. Um, some of y'all know this about me. So my guilty pleasure TV show is Survivor. Yeah. Does anyone else watch that show? Just humor me. Whoa. Yes, let's go. Okay, we're going to talk afterwards. Um, so, Survivor, it's on its 36th season right now. Yeah. Let me just, if you don't know the show, I've, I've applied for it. I want to be on it. It's never going to happen. But anyway, the show is, um, it's kind of absurd and ridiculous, but it's, it's, a chance to win a million dollars. There's 20 people that go onto this deserted island, and every week someone gets voted off the island. And there's different ways that you can get, uh, that you can avoid getting voted off the island. Because, you know, someone, a bunch of people might not like you, but if you get, like, a bigger crowd of people to vote with you, you can vote out them, and, like, there's all, it's a social game. There's lots of lying. It's great. Anyway, there is an- another way, though, that you can be safe for one week in the game of Survivor is if you find a hidden immunity idol, which is hidden somewhere in your camp. And this hidden immunity idol usually looks like some kind of tribal necklace thing, and you can find it and not let anyone know that you have it until like when the vote happens. You're like, boom, suckers, I got the hidden immunity idol. Well, for you Survivor, my two other Survivor fans in the house probably know this story. But um, in the season of Survivor called Millennials versus Gen X, is that like the most ridiculous season ever? Uh, it's basically just the whole time you're like, ugh, millennials. Anyway, whatever. Get over it, CBS. Come on. Um, in Survivor Millennials versus Gen X, Dave, who's a, the Gen X guy, a Generation X guy, he makes a fake immunity idol. He, like, finds beads and, like, twine, and he creates his own little fake immunity idol, and then he hides it. And then, like, it's like, oh, the stupid millennial guy, Jay, finds it, you know. And he finds it, and he's like, yes, like, I'm going to punk everyone and play the hidden immunity idol. And he's like, I'm going to be safe for this vote. Everyone wants to, wants to take me out. This is going to give me one step closer to the million dollars. 
and it's, it's kind of, it's just this, be- I'll rewatch the scene there on YouTube. It's this beautiful scene of like this guy who just thinks he is so safe and that no one can vote him out and, he, and everyone votes for him and then he stands up and he's like, I've got a hidden immunity idol. And the host of the show takes, he's like, this is not a hidden immunity idol. And they're like, bye Jay, you lose. And here's the thing, is we are, we are just like Jay. Because we look to these idols in our life that we think promise our salvation, and they actually lead to our demise. So my question for you is, what is, what is your counterfeit God? What is your idol? Idols are, idols are created things that we look to to give us the kind of hope that only the creator can give us. That's what an idol is. A good diagnostic for finding out and figuring out what is my idol is this. Think about how you would fill in this blank. When blank goes bad, it's been a bad day. And when blank goes well, it's been a good one. What is it that's defining you? Another diagnostic. What are you afraid of losing or not getting? What's the thing that you think if I don't have that, then I'm not going to be okay. Because that's where your hope is. And where your hope is, that's where your heart is. And you see, Satan knows this. And he knows, see, what he does with idolatry is he doesn't take something bad and get you to worship it. He takes something that's good and he tempts you to make it an ultimate thing in your life. Because he knows that if it's an ultimate, if that good thing is an ultimate thing in your life, it can't save you. So he wants you to put your hope there because he doesn't want you to be saved. What are the kinds of things that we look to and think about, like, if I have to have that or I'm not okay? And so what we'll begin doing is we'll begin, begin living the kind of life that the beast wants us to live in order to get it. Like some of you are terrified about not finding a husband or a wife. And so because, because of the terror of that, you will, you will date a certain way so that you won't lose the person that, that you think might end your fears and make you okay. You'll give yourself away to them. You'll give your body to them so that you don't lose them. Or, or you'll even you'll prioritize the kind of person that you date because what you want, like you don't just want a husband, but you want someone who's going to give you a certain kind of status or who comes from a certain kind of family and if you can't marry into that and be part of that life that maybe even you enjoyed as a child, then where's your hope? Some of you, I can relate to all these, by the way. That's why I'm, that's why I'm using these examples. Um, some of you, you long for a meaningful life. And it, which is, a, by the way, all these are good things that I'm listing. 
but you long for a meaningful life and you break your back and you're so incredibly busy chasing money and significance and glory that you end up driving yourself crazy and miserable. Chasing something that you ultimately can't have. Can I do a study real quick? This is fun. I've I've been wanting to do this with you guys. I want everyone to raise their hand if you can name, I'm not going to call on anyone, I promise. Raise your hand if you, and you can raise it like shyly if you want to. But raise your hand if you can name the first name of all four of your grandparents. All four of your grandparents. Okay, so y'all know how like family trees work. So the next generation would be your great grandparents. You would have eight of those. Raise, keep your hand raised if you can name the first names of all eight of your great grandparents. I'm so glad that you're the only hand up still, <laughs> Elizabeth Clark. <laughs> Do you know all 16 great-great-grandparents? No. First names? Okay. All right. Here's what I want you to see. That's your own flesh. I can't go, I can't go to great-grandparents. I don't know all, all eight of their names. That's just a few generations back. Forgotten. Forgotten. This is, this is why Ancestry.com is making like tons of money right now because we're all afraid of being forgotten. Because what, we've, what we can put our hope to is like, I need to make my life meaningful and then I'll be okay. But it, that can't hold what you need. It's too feeble. Maybe, maybe your idol is your social life. And so you make concessions to keep it intact. You make moral concessions. You let someone cheat off of you or you cheat off of someone else. You party a certain way. You speak ill of people so that you can maintain this thing that you think you have to have. We all do this. We all do this. And here's the thing. The beast knows that it can't save you because it's a counterfeit God. But uh, more briefly, let's look at the sea beast now. I'm sorry, the land beast. The land beast, um, if the sea beast is worldly idols, the land beast is false religion. Because it shows up and it's making, it's making religious claims. It shows up like a lamb, which Jesus is already depicted as in Revelation 5. Um, and it also begins making threats to people who don't worship the cer- a certain way that it wants things to wor- be worshipped. Look at verse 15. It makes threats to the people who don't worship the beast. What the land beast does is it depicts false worship. And then at the very end, we get this interesting little detail, and I'm, gonna, I'm sure you were curious about it while I was talking about it, so I'll tell you what, I, what I've figured out. Um, but we get this number, 666, at the end. And, um, man, there's been a lot of ink spilled over what that is. Um, there's this thing called gematria. Some of you might know what that is, where it's like this ancient practice of taking numbers and figuring, like, they would, they would make certain letters correspond to different numbers, and if you manipulate the number 666 a certain way, like, in Greek or Latin or, Ro- or like, Roman, Latin, um, then you can make it spell all kinds of different things. Like, people have, have manipulated the numbers to show, like, this spells college station. No, I'm just kidding. They don't do that. But they manipulate, <laughs> sorry, they, <laughs> they manipulate the numbers to show, like, this spells Nero. Who was, who was an emperor back then, or this spells Hitler. Or, uh, I mean, 
one that makes the most sense to me is like, this spells beast. The, like if you use gematria, it says beast. That's what 666 means. This means beast. Um, but that, that part of it, I'm, I'm less sure, but I don't really know. But I do think that there's something really interesting, and, and it hits on a point that I've made a couple, um, a couple times through this series, is whenever you see something repeated three times in the Bible, it's, it's, it's ways of really emphasizing something. Earlier in um, Revelation 4, we see these four creatures, and they're flying around God's throne, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And it's very rare in the Bible where you have something repeated three times. It's just like, it's, it's the ancient way of underlining and bold and italicized, like holy, holy, holy. And here you've got this number six, six, six. And I want you to think about, he, sa- he, he says it's the number of a man in verse 16. Um, we've said multiple times um, and pointed out how many times the number seven is used all throughout the book of Revelation, that seven is the, is the number of perfection and wholeness. And there's, the, Jesus' name is mentioned seven times in the Bible. There's seven, t- or in Revelation, there's seven um, spirits which represent the Holy Spirit in Revelation 1. There's seven churches in Revelation 2. There's all these sevens which represent fullness and completion. But what is six? Six is falling just short of seven. And so, the image that, you, that I think we're supposed to get with this 666 is an image of complete incompleteness. That's what the mark of the beast is. Complete incompleteness. Something that actually can't get you what you ultimately need, and that's what false religion really is. Is it something that feels so close, but it's just not it. And I'm not only talking about like other world religions, which I, but I do think that they're included in this. But I think one in particular that I see here at Texas, and one that's, that I have dealt with in my own life, is the false religion of moralism. And it's this. It's the idea that, this is like what the whole book of Galatians is written about, that what we do with the gospel of who Jesus is is like, okay, great, so... I'm saved by believing in him. Great. Good job. You believing in him. But now if you want to really be serious about your faith, you need to do blank. Like Jesus plus quiet times. If you want to be legit, you'll, you'll have a quiet time every day. And then you'll be for real. Or Jesus plus evangelism. You're not sharing your faith enough with your friends you must not be for real. And we hang our head in shame because we think that that's how God deals with us. And that's what the beast wants you to think. Because that is complete incompleteness. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He, he is all that we need. So I want you to look at I want you to look at then the real God. How is he depicted? Who is he? And think about this. There's this interesting thing in verse 17 where it talks about how like uh, they can't, no one can buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast. You can't make transactions 
unless like you have, and people have been like, is this like some computer chip that's going to get like implanted in our heads or in our hands? Like, should we be freaked out about Venmo right now? Like, what's going on? Um, by the way, if you want to pay for the sweatshirts, you can Venmo me. But anyway, um, the, uh, there's this idea that like you can't transact, you can't make transactions unless you have this number on you. And already we've seen that that. God, people who are believers in God, that he puts a, this image of a name on them too. He puts a name on them, and that name makes you rich. Listen to how this is described in Revelation 3. We, we, we looked at this earlier this year. Listen to what the real God says to his church. Not the counterfeit God, but what the real God says. He looks at his church and he says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So get away from me, you're awful. No, he doesn't say that. You're naked, you're poor, you're, you're naked, you're poor, you're pitiable. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. What God welcomes you to do to transact with him and you may be thinking like well he just said that i'm poor and i have nothing i'm naked so like what do i bring to transact with him exactly nothing you don't you don't come feeling like you need to have some mark and some way that you can come and, and say you owe me you know, give me grace mm -mm. you just come to him as you are and he gives you grace Free grace. So, I've had a stressful day. Not gonna be. Not gonna lie. Um, Chrissy called me at four o'clock, and <laughs> Julia Hickey was there because she. Were you coming to babysit? Why were you at our house? Just to hang out. Awesome. So Julia uh, was coming to our house, and the scene that Julia Hickey walked into was the pipe in our upstairs bathroom erupting and emitting water all over the place. I mean, it got everywhere in this bathroom. It's dripping through the floor into the level below. It's going to be, it's a mess. It's going it's, it's to cost a lot of money to fix. And it's a complete mess. And so Chrissy's calling me. She's like, you've got to come home right now. I come home. And she's like, okay, like, things are settled down now. I'm trying to dry stuff up. But like, I called the plumber and they said like, there's a guy who just comes and they, they come and like, they bring vacuums and they clean everything up. And uh, it keeps mold from, from, from like growing in your house. So like he's on his way right now to fix our mess. Y'all are not going to believe me when I tell you this. The door, I <laughs> knock on the door, I go and open it. And the guy's shirt just says, he's wearing this orange shirt with white lettering that says, be clean. And he says, hey, my name is Jesus. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> like, Jesus just came to like clean up my mess? Really? He's going to come in and make me clean? And I bring Jesus straight up to where, like, our bathroom has erupted. And it is, it, it is welcome to the trap of nastiness. And then I bring him down into the basement where the water leaked into and where all of our kids like to play because they think it's like the Harry Potter room. It's really cool. It's like right under the stairs. It's totally like the little Harry Potter room. Like it's small and they crawl in there. And it's a disaster in there all the time. I bring Jesus in there. Jesus sees all the worst parts of the trap house. But he has to do it to make us clean. 
<laughs> I know that it's such a cheesy illustration, but how could I not say that? The guy's name was Jesus. <laughs> Y'all, that's, it, it is the gospel. That you bring the real God into you, the real parts of your life, and he claims you. And so you come to him. And the way, the way that you fight against this beast, the false religion, the, the, the moralism that, that pops into your head and says, like, oh, I've got to like do that and that and that to really make him okay with me. The way you fight it, something that's fake, is you've got to be around the real thing a lot and rest in it. Karan Butler, NBA basketball player, he was addicted to chewing straws during basketball games, plastic straws. He, would go th- he said he would go through 12 straws per half. He'd like fold them up in his mouth. <laughs> it's a hilarious YouTube video. You should watch it. Um, but the best thing about this is you could get, they, so they did a study, like one of the journalists who's like following Crumb Butler's team, he gets 20 straws from 20 different fast food restaurants, and they blindfolded Karan Butler, and they're like, we want to see if you can find the straw that you like. He's a big McDonald's guy. He goes to McDonald's before every basketball game he, because he likes the McDonald's straw. And with only, with only touching it and smelling it, he's blindfolded. He's touching it and smelling He's like, mm-mm, Subway, Burger King, mm-mm, hmm, not 7-Eleven. Uh, he's just like going through them all. And he gets to him, he's like, this is it. This is, and he, like, he can smile, he like unwraps, he pops in his mouth, he's like, that's McDonald's straw. <laughs> and he knows it's a McDonald's straw because he's, he's around them all the time. And the way that we fight against, you fight against the false religion of moralism, is you just spend time with Jesus and let him clean you. Be around him. And, and experience his grace over and over and over again. Because what the real God did, what Jesus did, is he came and he fell under, he gave himself over to the power of the beast from the sea, which controls the government authorities. And Rome and Pilate crucified him. And they crucified him because the beast of, this, of the land that is all about false religions, that beast sent the Pharisees and their false religion of moralism. And they hated Jesus. And he fell under their power so that you wouldn't to rescue you because he's the true God. He's the true one. And listen to how he's described. And I'll close with this passage and then we'll pray. But listen to how the real, the real thing is described in Revelation 19. It's the complete opposite of the beasts that we see in Revelation 13. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, not counterfeit. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head, remember this, on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And listen to what this real God does with the beasts. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, the land beast, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. What he does is he destroys the destroyers. 
No more shame. No more death. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the real thing and that you um, do not deceive, but that you are faithful and true and that we can welcome you into our mess. We love you. We thank you. And as we await the time to go into the promised land, as we spend our time in the wilderness, we pray that you would give us faithfulness. And Lord, we know that you are delaying your return so that many more can come to know you. And I pray for anyone who's here who's still considering these things, who, uh, who has a flicker of hope in their hearts that maybe, just maybe, you really will one day do everything to eradicate shame and death and evil and pain, and that you freely offer that to them as well. And I pray that they would believe in you, even this very night. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.